Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, so good to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. That passage we just read, Jeremiah chapter 29. If you don't know where Jeremiah is, no worries. Feel free to stop by the table of contents on your way there. Um, this week, as some of you may already know or you may have seen by the bulletin on your seat when you came in, we are beginning a series called Jesus and Politics. So I figured just a few disclaimers were in order before we begin. Fair enough? So uh, when we talk about Jesus and politics, there's a few things I just want to acknowledge that are in the room most likely. First, I would imagine that at least a few of us might be nervous about our church doing a series like this one, especially in the cultural and political climate that we are currently in as a country. I know that some of you are uncomfortable with the idea because as we were preparing to do this series, I just sort of floated the idea out to some of you just to see what your thoughts were on it. And the most common response I think I got from you guys was, are you sure we want to do that? Which I took as a very gentle way of you saying, I don't think we want to do that, actually. That was the response from a lot of people because the idea of talking about politics in church probably makes at least a few of us quite nervous. So if that's you, let me first respond by saying, trust me, you're not the only one who's nervous. You're not the only one that feels that way about this series. As the guy who has to teach this series, I would also prefer probably not to do it. There are some teaching series that we do as a church that I get really excited about. So for those of you that were around the beginning of this year when we did a series all about how to read and how to understand the Bible, that was a series I got really excited about doing. I was was really, really looking forward to it. It was a series we did about a year ago all about the Holy Spirit and how to think about and how to relate to the Holy Spirit. I was really excited about that series. I would not describe my attitude about this series as excited. That's probably not the word I would use. There might be some other words that I would use, but certainly not excited. I, like most humans, don't enjoy making people unnecessarily mad at me. So I am not excited about this particular series. But that being said, there are times when, as a pastor, I think things should be addressed whether or not we're excited to address them. And as a church, we have tried to make a habit of not ever letting nervousness be a reason not to talk about something that needs to be talked about. And especially when most everyone around us in our world is talking about this thing anyway, it seems like we should consider bringing what the scriptures have to say into the conversation. And so that's what we're going to be doing with this series. It just felt like, especially in an election year, it just felt like the right time to bring this up, whether or not we were excited to do that. So that's the first disclaimer. Here's the second one. We had this series on the calendar well before the year 2020 spontaneously combusted on all of us, okay? We were planning to do this actually a a long time ago. 
we, we had it planned before any of the COVID-19 stuff hit and certainly before any of the headlines of the past couple weeks came about. So once all of that stuff started to happen in our world, there was definitely a part of us among our teaching team that kind of crafts what we talk about on Sundays. There was part of us that just thought, okay, let's not do the series then. There's just too much else going on. There's too many other things to talk about. There's too many other potentially divisive types of things. Let's just not do this series right now because at least our our mindset was that maybe with all of the major stuff going on in the world right now, maybe that would take people's mind and attention off of politics just a little bit, at least temporarily, right? But what we've seen is rather than either of the things that have been going on lately in our world, rather than those driving the conversation away from politics, they've actually deepened the political rifts in our country all the more. Now, we're going to talk in our time of lament here in just a little while about how the way we respond to things like racial injustice really should not be a political issue. should not be a partisan issue, but far too often it is. So while to some of us it might feel like, why do this series right now with everything else going on in the world, we think that all the stuff going on in the world right now actually just heightens the need to talk about stuff like this. And additionally, let's just face it, the closer we all get to November and the election, the more none of us are going to want to talk about stuff like this any more than we have to, because we're just going to be so exhausted by it, right? So we figure, why not bring it up now while at least we're a little bit less exhausted by all of it? Um, One other disclaimer, actually two more I'll make, and then I promise we'll get into the passage, but it just feels like some things need to be said. Um, One thing that I'll mention in this series, just from a pastoral perspective, obviously, anytime you talk about politics, uh, anytime you say one thing, people assume that you mean about 17 other things. And so I would just ask you, if you're a part of our church family and we say something that maybe strikes you the wrong way or confuses you or seems off or whatever it is in this series, I mean, I would always encourage you to approach it this way, but specifically during a series on politics, uh, don't assume that we mean things we didn't said, if you don't mind. Just like I would hope we wouldn't do that with anybody, but certainly when we talk about politics, uh, if we said something and you think it meant something else, maybe just come and ask us. So our emails are on the website. You can talk to any of our pastors. We, we would love to clarify anything that we said that maybe wasn't communicated as clearly as it should have been. And so just, I would just ask that if you think we said something but we didn't actually say it, just ask us. Say, hey, did you mean this when you said this thing? That would be super helpful for discussions and how we all grow together in a series like this. And then last disclaimer, and I promise this one will be very quick. Um, Even if you are still not convinced that we should be doing a series like this as a church, even if you're still dreading it, you still think it's an awful idea, the good news is that this is literally going to be one of the shortest teaching series we've ever done. So we're going to talk about this for three weeks, and then we'll be done with it. And so stick with us for the next three weeks. I promise you will survive for three weeks, and and then we'll move on to something else. And in the meantime, you might just learn something along the way anyway, even if you were dreading it. All right. With all of that out of the way, let's get into our topic for this morning. So before we get to any of the ins and outs of politics and how to think about and approach politics, 
I think we've got to address an elephant in the room, and not like a Republican GOP elephant, but like just a regular awkward conversation elephant. And the elephant in the room is that probably quite a few of us don't actually care that much about politics in the first place. Would be my guess. The stats actually show that a good many Americans, and especially younger Americans, and a lot of you guys know we tend to trend a little bit young as churches go, that a lot of Americans tend to just be pretty apolitical. They don't actually care that much about politics in the first place. So if you go up to the average person in our country and you say, hey, are you like a Biden person or a Trump person? Or like, where are you at on all of this? There's a decent chance their response will be, I'm more of a Netflix person, really. I'm like really into Ozark on Netflix. I think it's a really good show. That's just where a lot of people are at, politically speaking. That's where probably quite a few of us are at, politically speaking. Or at least that's where we were at prior to the events of the past couple weeks or so in our country. And I wonder if even for those of us that all of a sudden, the past couple weeks, have started caring about political things a lot, I wonder if that's just a temporary spike in our level of concern. My fear is that a lot of us care about politics right now, sort of like a lot of people care about working out at January 1st every year. And from what I've heard, that is very much the concern of our black brothers and sisters too. That those of us who are white and care a lot about politics right now, that we largely won't, or at least probably won't, in a month or two from now. The concern is that we would go right back to not caring like we were before. So while in this series, we obviously need to speak to those who care too much about politics, and there's plenty of that out in the world and specifically in the church, right? While we certainly need to talk to those who care too much about politics, and we are going to spend a lot of time doing that, it would seem that first, we also need to speak to those who don't care that much at all about politics. And so that's largely what we're going to be doing this morning. Now, all of my cards on the table, political apathy has very much been my personal inclination in the past, and and honestly probably still is my inclination from time to time. The first time I voted was in the 2016 presidential election. I had not even registered to vote up until that election. Now, just for reference, I am now 33 years old, so that's quite a few national and local elections that I could have voted in and just chose not to. I just wasn't interested in the political world at all, and sometimes I'm still not. So trust me, if you're in the room and you just have a distaste for all things political and you're not interested in it at all and you don't want to get involved with it at all, trust me, I get where you're coming from. I get it. I feel that too. But that said, I have become more and more convinced in recent years that total political apathy might not be the most faithful posture for followers of Jesus to take. And one of the reasons that I've become convinced of that is passages like the one we're going to read here in a second from Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, before we get into the passage, just for context, to kind of understand what's going on in the passage that we're about to read. This is a book written by the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. And at this point in the story, God has sent Israel into something called exile. 
Now, if you were around for the past few months as we went through the book of 1 Peter, you know exactly what exile is. But in case you weren't around for that, basically, exile in short is the term for a person who lives in a certain place but does not truly feel like they fit in or belong in that place. It's when you are living as God's people in a place where you don't really belong or fit in. God is sending the nation of Israel into that type of situation, that type of environment, to live in a place under foreign rule where they don't truly fit in. They're going to be exiles. Now, as you might expect, they were all wondering how they should relate to this new place that they were going to live. They wanted to know how they should interact with and relate to their new host society. So most of us, when we find ourselves in a foreign or unfamiliar type situation, our default reaction is to just kind of keep to ourselves, right? We tend to put our heads down, insulate, and just sort of ride it out until it's all over. And you've got to think that at least a few of the Israelites were thinking that they would take that sort of posture in exile as well. But in what we're going to read in today's passage, we're going to discover that God actually has a very different posture in mind for his people while they are in exile and also by association for us as we find ourselves in exile. So let's take a look. Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here are the instructions starting in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So stop right there for a second. He tells the Israelites while they are in exile to, quote, build houses and plant gardens. Now, just to make sure we're all following, building houses and planting gardens are generally long-term activities, right? Those are things you do when you're going to be living somewhere for at least a little while because they both take a good bit of time to complete. I mean, think about even today with all of our modern equipment and machinery and building methods, to build a quality house still takes, what, six to nine months at least? So think about building a house in the year 587 B.C. You don't do that. You don't endeavor to do something like that if you're only going to be in that place temporarily. It wouldn't serve any real purpose. Same with planting gardens. So the last time you went to go stay at a hotel overnight, did you go, you know what I think I'm going to do with my time? I've got a few hours. I'm going to plant a garden right outside my window. It seems like a worthwhile use of my time while I'm here. You don't do that because you're not going to be there long enough to see any fruit from it. You're not going to see it produce anything because planting a garden is a long-term activity. But God says to the nation of Israel, hey, in this place you're about to live, I want you to plant gardens. I want you to build houses. I want you to settle in on some level to the society that you are now a part of. I I want you to make it your home to some extent. That's how I want you to think about your situation. Continuing in our passage in verse 6, it says this. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So in other words, don't just isolate and keep to yourself in this new place. I want you to see this place as home for a while. Be deeply connected and involved with it in this new place. 
All of this is God's way of saying, take a vested interest in the place that you're about to live as exiles. And just in case there was any confusion, he just comes right out and says it in verse 7. It says, seek the welfare. Now, if you like to highlight or underline things in your Bible, you might want to take note of that phrase right there. Seek the welfare. Seek the welfare, it says, of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If you like to highlight or underline things in your Bible, you might want to highlight that last part. In its welfare, you will find your welfare. We are called to, in the words of this passage, seek the welfare of our society. We are to work for the good of the civilization that we find ourselves a part of. That's what our lives should look like as followers of Jesus. So there's one misperception out there of what it means to be an exile that I think we need to correct before we go any further. So most Christians are actually aware of the concept of exile on some level. We're aware of that idea. So you'll hear Christians say things all the time like, this world is not my home, right? Or heaven is my home, or I'm just passing through. We say things like this as followers of Jesus. And listen, I say yes and amen to all of that. Those are very biblical ideas. But there's an outworking of that type of thinking that is actually not very biblical at all. And that's when we start thinking things like, this world is not my home, and therefore I don't care about what happens in this world. When we think things like, you know what, I'm just passing through, so I'm not going to invest any time or effort or energy or resources in the world that I'm just passing through. And we start to just take this posture, at least some Christians do, where we remain cool and calm and disconnected from our surroundings. And for some, just play the game of waiting on Jesus to come back. And when we start thinking like that, it stops being biblical and becomes unbiblical, or even anti-biblical, in fact at least according to Jeremiah 29. Because according to this passage, if we are exiles, a necessary part of being an exile is investing heavily in the good of the place where God has called us to be exiles. Actively participating in the lives of the people and systems and structures around us to make them better and to make them more reflective of the kingdom of God. You see, following Jesus means living for the common good. It's a necessary part of following Jesus. And just so we're clear, a central mechanism for achieving the common good of society is politics. Like it or not, whether you're happy with that statement or not, the reality is that is how our world works. Now, do understand first that when I say the word politics, I don't mean just partisan campaigning and attack ads. You could actually make the case that those don't serve the common good very much, right? So that's not what I mean when I say politics. Politics in reality is actually much broader than just those two things. The word politics literally translates, the the etymology of the word just means affairs of the cities. Affairs of the cities. So when I say politics, we might define it like this. The organizing structure around how cities, states, and nations go about life together. The organizing structure around how cities, states, and nations go about life together. Politics 
is the term for how our collective lives get organized and get structured. So laws get passed through politics. Laws get enforced to a large degree through politics. Goods and resources get distributed through politics. Taxes get determined and collected through politics. People get access to the resources that they need, often through politics. Listen, if criminal justice reform is going to happen, it is going to happen to a large degree because of politics. If police reform is going to happen, it is going to happen to a large degree because of politics, or not happen because of politics, right? So politics is actually bigger than I think a lot of us think that it is. For better or worse, a significant portion of the common good of our society gets achieved through or at least in relationship with politics. It's not the only way that we work towards the common good, but it is a pretty large piece of the puzzle in our society. Now, obviously, Jeremiah does not specifically mention politics in this passage that we just read. Most likely because there was no such thing as a democratic government back then. But if our goal as followers of Jesus is to, in his words, seek the welfare of the city, if our goal is to work towards the common good of our society, some of that is going to have to happen through politics. Saying that you care about the common good of society but you don't care about politics is kind of like saying you care about having healthy teeth but you don't care about brushing them. It just doesn't work like that. Whether you like it or not, brushing your teeth is a pretty important part of having healthy teeth. And like it or not, politics is a pretty central part of how we pursue the common good in our society. Again, it's not the only way, but it is a pretty big central piece of it. Now, in light of this, my point is simply that as followers of Jesus, we should probably shoot for something a little bit higher than total apathy towards politics. Now, before you hear me saying something I'm not saying, my point is not that we all need to go out tomorrow and become young Republicans. It's not that we need to become volunteer staffers on Joe Biden's campaign. I am not saying as a follower of Jesus, your entire life needs to be political. In fact, far from that. I'm simply saying that some of us should probably care a little bit more than we do right now. So if complete political apathy is a zero on the scale, and the person who only ever posts political things on Facebook is a 10, I'm not saying you need to be a 10, but I am saying as a follower of Jesus, you should probably consider becoming a one or a two. Does that make sense? And that's because politics is a central piece of how the common good, how the welfare of our city and our world gets pursued, gets achieved. Now, to that, some of you might be thinking, okay, sure, I hear you. I hear you on all of this. That makes sense. But here's the thing. Our political system is so broken. It's so divisive, it's so corrupt that I just don't see the benefit in getting involved with it. Like it just doesn't seem like it's gonna do any good. It feels so busted beyond repair. It doesn't feel like me caring about any of it is actually going to change anything. And to that, I say absolutely, I get it. I get that perspective. 
In fact, I often feel a lot of those very same tendencies in me on a regular basis. A couple things for us to consider on that, though. One, in many ways, you're right. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of corruption, a lot of division in our political system. I don't think I need to convince anybody of that reality. Nobody's arguing that the political system isn't broken, including some people who have been a major part of it. And I'll add to that. Just if if you want to think that politics is broken, that it's biased, that it's corrupt, uh, I'll add to that that out of our elected officials in America, 90% of them are white. So for those of us who are white and feel like the system is rigged, imagine how some of our minority brothers and sisters feel. So yes, there is brokenness and corruption in our political system. Absolutely there is. But here's the thing. The founders of our country actually anticipated that there would be brokenness in our political system. They actually anticipated that there would be corruption, which is why they built into our founding documents quite a few anti-corruption measures. Things like the balance of power, checks and balances, just the idea of officials being elected by the public in general. Those are all designed as guards and safeguards against corruption in politics. The founders knew that corruption was a very real possibility, so they decided to take proactive measures to fight against it when it would happen. But you know what one of those measures they took was? Informed citizens who would do something about corruption. They anticipated that in a free society, you and I would sniff out corruption and brokenness in our political system and that we wouldn't just let politicians get away with it. But the one thing that the founders never anticipated is that those citizens would use corruption and brokenness as a reason not to care. They could have never conceived of a society that complained about corruption and simultaneously took no steps to do anything about it. That was fairly inconceivable from their perspective. And yet that is the posture that an awful lot of us have taken. Now, I want to be clear here that my goal in any of this is not to guilt, it's not to shame. Again, I've already admitted that for an awful lot of years, I have been part of the problem. I probably still am in more ways than I realize. But as someone who has been part of the problem, I want to make sure that we realize if our concern is corruption and brokenness in our government, we do realize that by being, by withdrawing from the whole process, we are perpetuating the problem, right? The, The more that people like you and me who care about what's right and still refuse to do anything about it, the more the corruption spreads. We live in a democracy, so you know what we should do if we notice that a law or a policy or a politician is corrupt? We should do something about it. But if all we do is say, man, the system's so broken, I'd just rather not get involved, you know what'll happen? Things will likely get worse. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but we got to where we currently are because a lot of people didn't care enough to do something. I won't lie to you guys. Right now in our world, there is some alarming stuff happening on the edges of both major political parties. And to be honest, sometimes right smack in the middle of both parties. 
There is alarming stuff happening in our world within some of our police force and in those who oppose the police. In all of those arenas, there is injustice and there is corruption and sometimes there is outright evil taking place. There are things that need to be confronted and corrected and in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing. But whatever you do, hear me out on this, the primary reason I want us to learn to care about these things is not because the founders hoped that we would, It's not because Martin Luther King said that we should. It's not even because we want America to flourish. All of those are great things. But that's not why I want you and I to care about these things as followers of Jesus. The primary reason I want us to care about these things as followers of Jesus is because apathy and indifference have never been defining traits of the people of God. Apathy is not a fruit of the Spirit. Romans 12 verse 11 says this, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Be fervent in spirit, Paul says. That word fervent there is a very vivid word. It's literally the word for water that bubbles over because it's hot enough to boil. When Paul says that we should be fervent as God's people, what he means is that we should be boiling over with intentional, proactive, passionate attentiveness to the things in our world. We don't respond to brokenness with apathy because apathy never fixed anything. In fact, apathy usually makes some things a good bit worse. The very first story we read about in the scriptures in the book of Genesis details an account of a time when evil arrived on the scene and Adam did nothing about it. As one of the only four living beings in the account, he is suspiciously absent from the account of the conversation between the serpent and Eve. But we find out eventually that Adam was actually there the whole time. You can almost imagine the thoughts running through Adam's mind when the conversation was going down, right? He's going, well, you know, this conversation just feels really broken and really divisive. Seems like there's a lot of corruption going on here, and so I'm just going to step back. I'm just going to kind of wait to see what happens here. I I don't think I should get involved with something like this. But at the end of the story, we find out that because Adam does nothing, God holds Adam every bit as responsible as Eve, because he was there and he chose not to do anything. So my point is that when our default response to brokenness in our world, brokenness anywhere in our world, is apathy, we're falling for the oldest trick in the book, literally. And what's more is that we're not embodying who we were made to be as God's people. We're actually embodying the opposite of who we were made to be. We're enabling, we're shirking responsibility and our calling as image bearers of God when we do that. That's the problem with apathy. And more pointedly, responding to brokenness with apathy stands in stark contrast to the posture of Jesus himself. The very idea behind the gospel, the good news that we celebrate every single day of our lives as followers of Jesus, the gospel is that Jesus responded to our brokenness by entering into it. 
Can you imagine if God took the same posture towards our brokenness that we often take towards the brokenness of our political world? Well, I don't know. It just seems too dark, too divisive, too sinful. I think I better not get involved with something like this. Praise God that he didn't respond that way to us. Praise God that he saw brokenness as an opportunity to step in, not step out. Praise God that he saw it as an opportunity to care, not to withdraw. Praise God that he responded with action and not with apathy to our situation. The very nature of the gospel is that God came incarnationally into our brokenness and took it upon himself to do something about that brokenness. That's the message of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you know that Jesus did that for you, now it's your job to do the same. You see, what the world needs now, even and especially in the realm of politics, is for followers of Jesus to join him in caring. To choose to care rather, to with, rather than to withdraw. To, in the words of Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the place where God has sent us into exile. Because in its welfare, we will find our welfare. So let's talk for a bit before we're done about what all of this might look like. Let's talk about some ways to care, some practical ways to care well about what happens in the political realm of our world. Now, just for time's sake, I'm only going to cover three. There are obviously way more ways to care than this, but I'm just going to try to give us some big categories to put things in. So we'll start with one way to care that I think we often tend to neglect, and that's that we should pray. We should pray. One way to express care and concern for the political world is to regularly and consistently pray for it. Now, notice I did not say only pray. I said at least pray. This is one that we should all participate in as followers of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2 says it like this. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, originally, when we were mapping out this series, I thought about doing a whole week just on that passage because there is so much in those four verses to draw out. But just very briefly, notice a few things about what we just read. First, notice the types of prayers that he encourages. So it's not just generic, God help this person make good decisions and be a good leader. It's more than that. He, he says petitions, meaning we persistently and aggressively ask God to do something in and through these leaders. Intercessions, meaning we set aside specific time to pray for these leaders by name. And thanksgiving, meaning whether it's easy for us to do or not, we look for things to thank God for about specific leaders. So let me just ask you, do you spend time thanking God about leaders from both political parties? I'll just let that be as convicting to you as it was for me. Do you spend time thanking God for things about specific government leaders? Now, again here, I know what our pushback is, okay? 
I get that internally a lot of us are going, okay, but what if that leader is really awful and corrupt? Do we still have to find things to thank God for about them? And to be sure, that makes it a lot more difficult to do, no doubt about it. But let's just remember that in context, Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy 2, while the ancient world was under the reign of Emperor Nero. I don't know if you know much about world history, but Emperor Nero was pretty horrible. Like, to the effect of burning Christians alive, horrible. So, as difficult as this concept might be for us, if Paul can say it to them, he can also say it to us, right? If he can say it about that leader, he can certainly say it about any of our leaders today. So he says petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving, all types of prayers that should characterize our posture towards those in political office and positions of authority in our world. Now, I also want you to look at the purpose of all of those prayers. He says that we should pray for our leaders, quote, so that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So if I'm reading Paul right here, what he just suggested in this passage is that some people, and likely some of us, are more anxious and worked up than we should be when it comes to politics because we aren't praying enough about it. Did you catch that? We lack peace in our lives, in other words, when it comes to politics, because we go to social media more than we go to the Father about it. Paul says, if you do this, it will lead to you living a peaceful and quiet life with godliness and holiness. And that's why we're called to do it. And lastly, I just want you to look at the motivation behind these prayers, I want you to look at what he says the motivation should be. It says, because, quote, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's the ultimate purpose in what we're praying. So one thing that we should specifically pray for is for those in political offices to come to know Jesus. That's one thing we should be praying for on a regular basis. So listen, if you feel like you should, feel free to pray that Trump gets voted out of office in the next term. If that's your prerogative, if that's your perspective, feel free to pray in that direction. Just so long as you are also praying that he comes to know Jesus. You following me there? The ultimate goal is not just that we would get rid of people that don't see things from our perspective. The goal is not that we would silence people that are different than us. The goal is that every human being would come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and be transformed from the inside out. And if you're not praying for that in regard to our political leaders, don't pray for anything else until you've done that first. That's what we need. On the left, on the right, all across the aisle, what we need is for people to meet Jesus. And for that to inform how they govern and how they make decisions and how they pass laws and how they inform laws. So we start there. That's what God wants is for every person to come to a knowledge of who Jesus is. So first off, we, we care by praying. That's the first way that we are called to care. Second way that we are called to care, I think, as followers of Jesus is to vote to get out and to cast your vote. A couple of notes on this one. 
First, I want you to notice that I am not telling you who or what party to vote for. There's a reason for that. My take is that followers of Jesus can, with deep conviction, vote for candidates of either major political party and probably for some third parties as well. I just haven't researched those quite as much. Followers of Jesus can, with deep conviction, vote for candidates of either major political party. I have heard Christians articulate compelling reasons for why they vote Democrat, for why they vote Republican, and for why they vote for Democrats and Republicans depending on the candidate, the office, and the election. And I would say that as so long as you are thoughtful and intentional about those decisions, those can all be faithful responses as a follower of Jesus. We'll get into more of that in next week's teaching. But second, if you don't currently vote and you want to start voting, here's what I would suggest. Just a tip, take it or leave it. Start local and work your way out. Start local when it comes to voting and work your way out from there. Sometimes it can be hard to feel like your vote matters in a national election. I get that. And in a state like Tennessee that usually only trends one way in national elections, it's even easier to feel like your vote doesn't count. But local elections are usually a little bit different. So the next time there's a local election, whether that's mayor or city council or sheriff or school board superintendent or whatever it is, do your research and cast your vote. Sometimes it's a lot easier to care about local elections because the things you're voting for have a lot more of a day-to-day impact on your life than sometimes national elections do. And lastly, and this one's very, very important, I think, in our society today, keep in mind that a vote is not the same thing as an endorsement. A vote is not the same thing as an endorsement. By voting for a candidate or a party, you are not saying, I'm 100% behind everything this person stands for or any, everything this platform stands for. That wouldn't even make sense. There has never been a candidate that I have agreed with on 100% of the things that he stands for or she stands for. That's never happened. Instead, when you vote for someone or when you vote for something, what you're saying is that I think this candidate or this platform is a good thing for this position. Or maybe even just I think they're barely better than the other person. That's what you're saying when you vote. So listen, set yourself free from needing to completely see eye to eye with everything a candidate stands for in order to vote their particular way. A vote is not an endorsement. Otherwise, they would have called it an endorsement. They didn't call it that. They called it a vote. And I'll add this. That means that other people's votes aren't endorsements either. Other people's votes are not endorsements either. For example, and this is where we'll get a little bit controversial, and that's fine. You should not operate as if everyone who votes for Joe Biden in the next election is okay with killing unborn children, and you shouldn't operate as if everyone who votes for Trump in the next election is a racist. That is such a flat, unhelpful way of viewing other people. And that's how we got ourselves into the current level of bickering that we're in, is because people can't disassociate that. People are unable to go, yes, this person voted for a different person than I voted for, and that might not mean they're 100% on board with everything that candidate does. 
Listen, it is impossible. It is impossible for you to love another person while you turn them into a political caricature. Those two things are mutually exclusive. To love people, you've got to get to know them. And you've got to quit associating them with everything that you don't like just because they see things differently than you do. So a vote is not an endorsement, and other people's votes are not endorsements either. Lastly, one more way to care is to get involved. To get involved. Finally, we should consider getting involved in more regular and more hands-on ways than just voting. So for some of us, we need to consider attending our local school board meetings, our local neighborhood meetings, our city council meetings, all things of that sort. Because often, in those settings, we can make our voices heard. So as an example, I know many of you these past few weeks, like me, were horrified to see so many blatant examples of racial injustice in our country. I know many of you tweeted about it, you posted online about it, and if you did that, listen, that's great. I'm glad you did that. That's certainly better than saying nothing at all. But at the same time, just so you know, a tweet doesn't generally accomplish all that much. It's helpful. Maybe it helps our black brothers and sisters know that we're, that we're with them, that we see them, that we recognize what's happening. Maybe it helps on that level for sure. But at the same time, it doesn't generally lead to much lasting change. A post on social media doesn't. Unless you're like somebody with tens of thousands of followers, which, let's face it, is probably not most of us, right? Myself included. You see, for things to change in our world, whatever that is for you, whatever it is that you think needs to change, for things to change, you actually need to do things like research whether our own local government has effective protections and policies in place. And if we don't, you need to write or email or call or go to a meeting where the people who make those decisions are and you can make your voice heard. For things to change, you actually need to figure out, for example, what the barriers are in our city that make minority voices unheard and be an advocate for those things to change. Tweets and Facebook posts are great. They can be a good place to start, but actual change usually requires a little bit more than that. Now, for others of us, politics is actually something that we are especially passionate about at a personal level. Some of you are just cut out for the political world, and I'm not, so I have mad respect for that. But some of you, that's just what you're interested in. You are especially equipped for that particular realm of society. So for you, getting involved may very well look like volunteering with your candidate or your party of choice. Some of you may end up running for office one day, and I will rejoice the day that that happens because it means we have someone from our church family who follows Jesus making decisions that affect our society at large. And whether I personally agree with all the decisions you make or not, I will praise God for affording you that opportunity. So for some of you, maybe you need to ask yourself, is that me? Am I cut out for that? Am I one of the people that God has especially equipped for involvement in that world? Maybe for too long you've seen the worlds of following Jesus and political aspirations as just being incompatible and instead you need to see them as an opportunity. Maybe that's how God has equipped you to be a part of bringing his kingdom to earth in the here and now. 
If you spend much time in the scriptures at all, you will notice that God uses plenty of his people in positions of political influence for his purposes. He does it often. David, Nathan, Esther, Daniel, the list goes on and on in the scriptures. People who God elevated to positions of political influence and then used them for the common good of that society. And there may be some of us listening to this right now for whom God wants to utilize us in that way. And when that happens, listen, the rest of us in our church family, our response should not be to roll our eyes and sigh and accuse those people of being, quote, too political. But instead, our response should be to praise God for people who feel called into the inner workings of the political world and praise God for people who bring a true compassionate faith into all of that. We need that and the political system needs that. So again, those are just a few ways for us to begin caring, politically speaking. I want all of us to prayerfully consider if if your current posture towards politics is mainly that of apathy, I want you to consider prayerfully how God might want us to care well about things in that world. So like I said, for the other two weeks of this series, we're going to talk about how we very much do not want our church to be one that overemphasizes politics. I don't want people to think of City Church folks as being entangled and wrapped up in politics as a community. God knows there are already way too many examples of that in evangelicalism. But at the same time, I don't want us to make the opposite error either. I don't want us to let fear of that first error scare us into complete political apathy at all times. That's not a solution. It's not a solution for our world. I don't want it to create a posture in us where we run from the brokenness of our world rather than entering into it with wisdom and grace from Jesus. We follow a Savior who brings life into death and light into darkness. So let's, as his people, join him in that effort. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I know that this is, in many ways, a, a different kind of teaching um, God, I know it has the potential to, to rile, all, rile up all types of um, opinions and opposing perspectives and all of that. And so, God, I, I pray, first of all, that as a church family, we would navigate those conversations well, also with wisdom and grace from you. But, God, I, I pray that... Um, as a result of this morning, that maybe some of us who are inclined towards political apathy or just apathy in general about aspects of our world, God, that we would feel compelled to care. God, that we would embody the posture that that you laid out through the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 where we are bubbling over with passionate care and attentiveness to the things in our world that need attentiveness. God, there's a lot going on in our nation right now. 
God, there's a lot of things that are needed. God, policy change is needed. Reform is needed. God, because our system is is made out of broken people, there's always going to be broken things about it. But my prayer is that we as followers of Jesus would not use brokenness as an excuse to get out. But God, that we would use it as an opportunity to press in. To do what matters, to do what is needed. To talk to people, to have fruitful conversations, to to contact those in charge, to see to it that your kingdom comes to bear in the here and now more tomorrow than it is today. And so God, for all of this, we need your help. God, more than we want to bring our political perspective to bear, more than we want to bring our our political opinions to bear, any of that, God, we want to bring your kingdom here in Knoxville as it is in heaven. And so God, would you help us to be guided by that more than we're guided by anything else? God, would that perspective, that vision actually actually guide everything else that we think about and care about and everything that we do? God, we ask for your Spirit's help. We ask that you would convict where you need to convict in the next two weeks, that you would show us things that maybe are off or inconsistent with the way of Jesus. Oh my God, more than anything, our prayer is, um, here's our lives. Would you do with them what you want? Would you use them for your purposes, your glory? God, would you use them for our good, the good of our society as well? We ask this in your name.